Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 38 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is 2 Kings, chapters 8 through 13, along with the books of Jonah and Amos, all supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online or at skousen2000.com. If you prefer to listen, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found on audible.com. Today we cover chapters 16 through 17, the latter days of Elisha, and the ministries of Jonah and Amos. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Okay, now we're going to go, 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 go. Uh, this one is um, a technical chapter. Just want to be sure you picked it up. I'm going to cover two chapters today, but not uh, superficially. But I, I, I just want to be sure you got the highlights. Ben-Hadad II, king of Syria, was a very cruel king. It was he that tried to uh, have Elisha killed because he, he even knew the, th the thoughts in your bedroom. He didn't like that. And so he was going to have Elisha killed, and he almost lost his whole army. But when he found that Elisha was in the vicinity, he had such great respect for his prophetic powers that he sent um, his chief steward to him to see if he by any chance might recover. They were used to bribing the phony priests of the idolatrous gods, and uh, so they, he sent gifts to Elisha. How much? How much of a caravan? Forty camels of gifts. To be a phony prophet in those days was a very profitable enterprise. And um, as Naaman the leper found, he couldn't get Elisha to take gifts. Undoubtedly, the same thing happened here. Now, Elisha uh, gave a very peculiar answer to the question. It was a contradiction. No, mostly it was a question in those days of kind of going up through a ritual, uh, a, um, a pattern of preparation, but it was, it was a willingness to sell your soul. That's really all it amounted to. And once you were in on the syndicate, why, uh, you, you were trained to tell the king what he wanted to hear and to uh, palaver over him and, and so forth. The real con game is really what it was. No, it was kind of a conspiracy. Yes, well, what they're doing is taking the Bible prophecies and then applying it to existing conditions, which is very easy to do. Daniel talks about the kingdom of the north against the kingdom of the south, and so they said, well, that's Russia versus China. They used to say it was Germany uh, versus France. See, no matter what, you, you can fit it in somehow. No, 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 I wouldn't say so. I've met some of them, and they're well-meaning. They say it, it obviously says it, and you can see it happening right in front of us. When I wrote Prophecy in Modern Times, so many people tried to get me to identify Gog. Who's Gog and Magog? I said, I don't know. They you mean you can't find the people it fits? It's obviously Hitler. And I said, well, he aspires to be Gog, but we don't know whether he'll turn out to be the one or not. He's gone and others come. 
They thought it was Stalin for sure. He's gone. And they thought it was Khrushchev for sure. And he's gone. So we just have to, as I said in Prophecy in Modern Times, if the Lord hasn't revealed it, we're not going to identify it. So we just wait and see. But uh, there, we do have some of those who don't pretend to be prophets. They just be, pretend to be uh, television interpreters of prophecy. I have a few of those around. Any other point, question on that? Now, it was a strange answer. What did he say? King Ben-Hadad... Yeah, he could, could, he could live, but he won't. Then he, he looks at um, uh, Hazael and uh, starts crying. And Hazael is there to make friends and win influence and, and be nice to Elisha. And he, why are you crying? He says, because there is going through my mind at this moment a vision of what you will do to my people. What am I going to do to them? I see you ripping them open. I see you killing men, women, and children. I see you devastating the killing expectant mothers and everything else. And Hazael says, Am I a dog? Elisha should have answered him. <laughs> anyway, he went home, and um, this prophet is a very dangerous fellow to have around. I mean, he even anticipates your conspiracies. Uh, did he know that uh, Hazael would be the next king of Israel, or king of uh, Syria? Yes, he did. So, he, wanted be, he became king right away, didn't he, the next morning. What did he, how did he become king? By smothering the current king. And then he, uh, and for 42 years, he just created all kinds of havoc for apostate Israel. Um, now, those details I'm sure you have in mind. Now, Jezebel is the queen mother. Her husband is dead. Ahab, the wicked brother, is dead. She has one of her sons on the throne of Israel, and she has her daughter, the wife of the king of Judah. She really has things going her way. And uh, uh, when Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, took over the throne, uh, Athaliah, Jezebel's daughter, had so much influence on him that she got all of the Jewish people to start participating in this sacramental fornication and sacramental drunkenness and, and all this sort of thing, and elect, erecting all of these symbols on the hills, including the Mount of Olives. And the symbols that they erected, as, as you know, were um, statues of the genitals in very grotesque form, and then they would worship there. They'd have these in the groves and elsewhere. It was just an ugly, vicious uh, fertility worship sort of thing. And Jehoram, the king of the Jews, uh, acting under the influence of his wife, killed off all of his brothers, all six of his brothers, murdered them, so that none of them would try to get the throne. So you have complete depravity going on now, both north and south. And Jezebel just excited about it that she's been able to accomplish this. Well, in eight years, Athaliah lost her husband, and uh, he had lost all his wives and children, except Athaliah and her son. Who killed uh, all the other wives and the children of the king? Remember? Who? Who? No, not in, not in this case. It was a war. There was a war that came on, and all of the tributaries, tributaries of the Jews had been breaking away, and finally the Arabs came up, raided Jerusalem, took all the loot out of the temple, killed his wives and, and uh, all of his children that they could find. Athaliah and her son escaped. 
So when the father died, his one son that escaped was 22 years of age, Ahaziah, and uh, he was the king when um, events began to happen up north to his cousin, Jehoram. Now, uh, Ahaziah, you got two Jehorams, Jehoram of Israel and Jehoram of Judah. Jehoram of Judah is dead. Ahaziah, his son, is on the throne. Jehoram of Israel is alive and uh, wants to go over and conquer the city that his father was killed trying to conquer, which is Ramoth Gilead. Right over here. Uh, what's the capital right here? What's it called? Right fast. Uh, well, that, that was the former capital. What's the capital now? Samaria. What's the little one over there at the side they had just a short time? Or Zimri, okay. And uh, what, what are these mountains called where Saul was killed? Gilboa, mountains of Gilboa. What's that mountain right there? Armel. What's that town right there? That's fine. That's the way to do it. Um, what's that seaport right there? What's that one right up there? Haifa. Joppa, Haifa. It's called Tel Aviv today. What's this city uh, right up here? Capital. Okay. What's the one seven miles south? Bethany. What's the one 16 miles south? What's the one down here on the desert? Little, little weak, but uh, anyway. Keep working on it. Make that Bible geography live in your mind so that when it says Beersheba, Dan to Beersheba, you know Dan is up here. Beersheba's right there. Uh, these places come to you. All right, uh, they won the city. They, they, they beat uh, the Syrians up here, and they're able to take the city, but their armies uh, still have it under siege. Uh, what's happened to King Jehoram of Israel? What's happened to him? In that battle, what happened to him? This was two weeks ago. Did you miss this one? Yeah, he was wounded. Okay, everybody remembered? You're really sure now? All right, he was wounded. And he, he goes back to Jezreel, his summer palace. This is why I review these lessons with you. If you. Anyone who doesn't attend the class and get the review will find it a terrific handicap when they go back. It's just that little extra dent in the brain. And it was the summer palace where he went back to be healed. And who came up to comfort him? Ahaziah, uh, king of Judah. So the two of them, they're there talking about it. And what they don't know is that Elisha has sent one of his uh, associate prophets over to Jehu, who's commander-in-chief here in charge of the troops that are still over there at Ramoth. And um, he came in and uh, asked some rather strange questions. Finally, he said to, to Jehu, you want to see him? So he went over and he said, uh, God wants you to be the next king. And clean out the house of Omri, which is Ahab, of course, and Jehoram, that whole house. Interesting, when the... When Jehu came back, why, they all said, uh, hey, what'd that mad fellow want? He was kind of indignant about it. What do you mean mad fellow? He had a great message. He was mad. That, that, that boy is all right. He's great. And so they finally coaxed him and got out of him the fact that uh, he had been designated by a prophet of God to cleanse Israel of this wicked generation and, uh, of rulers. So were they for him or against him? Yeah, they were very much for him. There was a stairway there, and they put all their cloaks on the stairs, and they had Jehu walk up to the top, and they hailed him as the next king, and, and uh, Jehu says, all right, I got a job to do. Okay, everybody all aboard, in your chariots, men, west. 
And so they crossed the ford right here and came up toward the palace. And the guard up on top of the tower saw somebody coming at a breakneck speed, and of course there may have been another war. So when Jehoram found out about it, why, he said, well, send a messenger, see if it's peace. So you notice when the messenger comes up, he says, is it peace? Each time they want to know if it's peace. And he really got the signal fast, didn't he? Did he race back and tell Jehoram that Jehu was coming to kill him? No, he got in behind. He trod line. He, he, he knows his politics, boy. He gets in fast. And another messenger is sent, and of course the same thing happens. By this time, the party is so close, the, um, the, the, the fellow up on top of the tower, he says, uh, Oh, I think I know who's coming. Uh, it, it looked as though uh, this might be this uh, reckless uh, cut-down uh, jeep model of a Phaeton uh, chariot driven by whom? Jehu, rushing across the road and up and down. He was, he was a reckless driver. He had a reputation for it. Wild Jehu. And uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the, the king makes up his mind he'll go down and meet him. Now, that means that he's, he's well enough to at least go see him. And so he takes off and comes down, and he has Azahiah with him. And so they uh, pull out just out of the yard. That's as far as they could get. When up comes Jehu, and it was kind of interesting. He says, uh, is it peace, Jehu? Same message, see? And Jehu says, what peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. Oh, Jehoram could see this immediately. Mutiny. So he turns around the king of Judah and says, it's treachery, O Hezaiah, which means wheel your horses and go. So both of them did. And Jehu just, he was in a good steady position. That was the worst thing Jehoram could have done, apparently, because Jehu just took a nice steady aim with his bow. Where did the arrow go? Right between his shoulder blades and came out his chest. Perfect shot. Went right through the heart, paralyzed him on the spot. Ahaziah saw what had happened, and he took off, and he went from here right down the main mountain road. And he came down here, and I've done it by bus, and those horses ran nearly 22 miles. And, uh, just as hard as they could go. Came down here, and, and then he circled back. He circled back, which is kind of amazing. And he came back, and they caught him right there. And killed him. Pardon? Don't know. Uh, if you come down out of the mountains, he may, I mean, he may have wanted to miss Samaria. I mean, the road goes right, right into the capital. And the capital is, is down as you're moving down out of the mountains. There's a road that comes right down and moves down onto the plains. And so he seems to have, have gone down there to get off the main road and then circled back. But you can see why they were able to finally catch him. Meanwhile, um, <clears throat> did Jehu follow him? No, he sent his other troops after him because he had somebody else to take care of. He went toward the palace, and as, as the queen mother saw what was happening, this wretched woman that had caused so much distress in Israel spent her last few minutes of her life doing what? Painting her face. Why? So she was really fixing up. And then she swings open the windows, and she reminds Jehu. She knows exactly what's happening. And she reminds Jehu what happened to whom? Zimri. How long did he last after he'd killed his master? Seven days. So she says to him, uh, uh, <clears throat> Had Zimri peace who slew his master? And um, 
So it's kind of interesting uh, what Jehu did. Uh, Zimri had no divine commission to cleanse the land. Zimri was as wicked as the man he slew, but Jehu had been designated the executioner of the house of Ahab, especially the heathen consort of Ahab, this Jezebel. So he just shouted up to whoever might be beyond Jezebel in the window and says, anybody up there on my side? And uh, when you've been around royal courts, you can sort of see when the tide has changed real fast. And survival depends upon dexterity, political dexterity. So there are a couple of eunuchs up there that were assigned to take care of the queen. And they shouted down and said, uh, oh, yes, we're on your side. All right, he said, throw her down. So they just picked her up by the heels and down she went onto the pavement below. And Jehu just hit his horses and rode right over her. The others followed, and they went on into the palace. It took a little while to get everything settled down, assure everybody that there was a new regime, new administration taking over. And then he remembered, uh, oh, yeah, they were even eating, you see. He said, oh, Jezebel, after all, she's a queen, so she should be buried. uh, buried." So he sent them down to get her, and what was left? The skull and the palms, two bony, I guess, something. But uh, unless you've seen these ravenous dogs in the Middle East, who are just skin and bone, uh, go after uh, anything that's dead. You can hardly understand how in uh, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, they'd have that body stripped right down to the bones and carried the bones off. There was nothing left of her. So she was never buried. And as it was with Naboth, so it was with Jezebel. So she bit the dust, so to speak. Then, then Jehu uh, went up to Samaria and by arrangements with the people in the city itself, he said, I'm, I'm taking over. I'll let you do the executing if you wish, but the house of Ahab must be wiped out after all they have done to Israel. And so they were all executed and Jehu and his family took over and began the reign. Now, <clears throat> after Ahaziah was dead, this leaves his wife, uh, Athaliah, of course, the widow queen. And just to make sure she wouldn't have any competition, she went and killed the children of all of the several wives of Ahaziah, but missed one little tiny boy, just a baby, hidden in the temple for seven years while she was queen over Judah. And then the high priest, by the time the boy was seven, decided to bring him out and had all of the principal military leaders come into the temple And then he gave them the spears and shields and other things that were kept on the Temple Mount. And then at a given signal, he had this little boy stand where the king always stood in front of the temple. Then they all, they anointed him king and hailed him as king. And Athaliah came storming uh, up onto the palace, onto the Temple Mount, saw what was happening, screamed treason, treason, treason at the top of her voice. But that was the last thing she screamed because they moved right in around her. Did they kill her on the spot? No, they thought it was, that was too nice a place to kill her. They took her outside, off the temple grounds, and there they sent her back to her judge. And um, Joash, or Jehoash, the, this little seven-year-old boy, grew up to maturity, was a very good king as long as Jehoiada the high priest lived. As soon as Jehoiada died, then he became wicked again. And Jehoiada died, and Jehoash... Um, excuse me, after Jehoiada died, Jehoash apostatized. I had a correction, by the way, on page 439. 
the early uh, the printings are correct. The, more, the most recent ones are wrong. Um, in the middle of the page, where the paragraph being, begins, King Jehoash, do you see that one? Okay, now in the third line, what's the first word in your book? Zedekiah? It should be Zechariah. I don't know how that ever happened uh, unless we corrected that line and when they went ahead and reprinted it, why they got Zedekiah. But it certainly wasn't uh, picked up in the uh, proofing somehow. Now, um, Jehoash, because of all of his wickedness, was ultimately murdered by two of his servants and Amaziah then ruled in his stead. Amaziah then killed the two servants that had killed his father. Amaziah then was replaced... Um, yeah, this is as far as we went in that chapter with Amaziah. Now, the death of Elisha occurred under interesting circumstances. Here he is dying up here at Samaria, and um, uh, Joash, um, the grandson of Jehu, is on the throne. He is a wicked king. They've apostatized now. The house of Jehu is just about to be annihilated. This wicked king, uh, was he sorry to lose Elisha? Yes, isn't that interesting? Uh, this often happens. Uh, I've watched this with gangsters and uh, strange people. When death hits, all of a sudden the hatchet is buried temporarily. and They get together and they mourn. And it's real interesting. Human beings are funny things. Don't know how the Lord endured as long as he has. But uh, in any event, this wicked king who wouldn't listen to the warnings of this prophet hears that he's dying and comes and mourns because he considers him a great power for good. Elisha says he has a last word to tell the king. He said, I want you to get your bow and arrows. And the, and the king got the bow. And he said, all right, now open the window so you can shoot out the window. So he did. And uh, Elisha said, now let me put my hands on your hands. And so the king drew back the bow and let the shaft go. And then he pulled out another one and let the shaft go. Pull down and let the shaft go, and he's getting kind of bored with this, you know. And so Elisha says, that all? He said, well, yeah, that's all. He said, you should have kept shooting. Every arrow represents what? Victory. Victory for you. And then um, he predicted that it wouldn't be long before uh, Israel would begin to have the opportunity to expand its boundaries and resources and power once again. Well, Elisha died then, and right after him there came a new prophet who predicted the rise of the man that turned out to be Jeroboam II that would extend the boundaries from clear up to the Euphrates River back down to Egypt again. Real great political power. Now, th this, this prophet was a very popular young fellow. He came from just uh, south of Galilee. Uh, his name was Jonah. And he had a very popular message. It isn't very often a prophet is allowed to say that we're going to win. They usually have to come and say, Woe, woe unto Israel, unless you repent. But this one comes along, he says, Things are going to pick up now. It's going to be better. So he was very popular and probably spoke at all the fireside chats and, and, and home evenings and so forth, whatever they were holding in those days. And, and to have had the satisfaction of spreading this good news and being a popular prophet, certainly didn't prepare him psychologically for what happened next. When God came to him and said, now I want you to go across the mountains over to Nineveh on the Tigris River and tell them they have just 40 days after they hear your message 
And if they haven't repented, they get the Sodom and Gomorrah treatment, annihilation. Now, it's impossible, as I mentioned in the book, to understand the reaction of, uh, of Jonah unless you know the kind of people the Lord was talking about. They weren't like the Romans. When the Romans came later to establish Pax Romana, they would move in on a territory, conquer it, and they'd say, all right, now keep the peace and pay your tribute. We have the centurion here with a hundred soldiers. If we have any trouble, we'll know what to do about it. And as a result, it established peace all over the then known world. Not so with the Assyrians. They came into a territory. They said, these are very expensive campaigns. You pay your tribute and don't make it necessary for us to come back. And just so you don't forget, everybody rally round. And they would take their leaders and right before their very eyes, they'd start in with their tongues. Now, the tongue cannot be torn loose from its roots unless a, unless a hook or something is put right through it. And, uh, and a, or a strong clamp. And then it can be torn right off its roots. If the person bends over quickly, he can keep from, from choking to death on his own blood and can survive. Otherwise, he will choke. They would crop the ears. They would take some and impale them alive on sharp poles. They would take others and string them up by their hands, make slight incisions right here above the collarbones, and then take the skin and start peeling it back. They get it back over the shoulders. They pull the skin clear down to the feet, and the human body can survive that experience. But that's all. It will die at the end of the flaying, which is skinning alive. Uh, others, they would uh, just decapitate, cut off the arms and the legs, and stack the torsos and pyramids. And uh, others, they would put to the living death, which was to cut off the knuckles, put them in prison till they heal, and bring them out and cut off the next ones, let them heal, cut them off the third knuckles, then cut off at the wrist, then the elbow, and then the arm. And they start in on the other uh, arm. It's called the living death. And just hack them to pieces and let them heal each time. That's the kind of people they were. This description of the Assyrians that was, uh, that was in Herodotus and some of the other uh, classical scholars was not believed. They thought it was just too terrible and it was just exaggerated until they found Nineveh and dug it up out of the, uh, the mud that uh, had accumulated over the top of it. And this only happened, you see, just about 100 years ago. And here were all of these kings represented uh, cut in stone on these walls, pulling out tongues, impaling on poles, skinning alive, and doing all these things that Herodotus and the other historians said they had done. Unless you understand this, and this isn't in the Bible, of course, but unless you understand this, it's impossible to uh, understand why Jonah reacted the way he did. Because he knew what happened to people who criticized Assyria. I mean, you didn't go to Nineveh and say that in 40 years they're going to be wiped out unless you were willing to pay the penalty. And the penalty was just beyond imagination. So Nineveh was that way, and Jonah went that way. And he went just as hard as he could go from there to here and was so exhausted when he arrived that he went into the, into the ship with which, on which he'd bought a ticket, went down below deck, fell asleep, and was so exhausted not even the storm would wake him up. And this ship was a um, Tarshish ship going to where? Going to Spain. And it had um, a bronze uh, articles on it, probably. Uh, what they would do is get this very uh, beautiful bronze that was made al all along that side of the uh, Mediterranean. 
they would trade everything for to the ports as they went around. They would arrive empty in Spain and fill up with what? What kind of ore? Tin to make bronze. You see, the copper is over in Palestine. They need tin. Later they run out and they have to go clear up to England to get tin out of Wales. That's where some of the ships finally went. So that was the, the way they were going to go, but they just barely got out off the coast there a little ways, and this terrible storm hit. A few years ago, I was in Beirut when one of these storms hit, and I thought of Jonah. Boy, those waves had come pounding up high and hard. You've seen the Poseidon um, adventure, uh, any of you? Well, that's the kind of... Uh, you, you get those big 30-foot wave, uh, waves rolling toward you, and they just can capsize a ship. So in any event, this ship was obviously going down, and it was so close to the, the water line because it was... Um, so heavy laden, the captain said, to save the ship, throw all of the, the wares overboard. So here they are, and somehow Jonah was so well placed down underneath, they didn't find him while they were unloading the boat. So it, it, obviously the boat was still going to sink. So the captain says, well, one of you probably offended your, your God. After all, they'd just been to a port. Everybody had offended somebody. So um, <laughs> he said, everybody pray. So they prayed, and that didn't do any good. So they decided somebody's lying. Somebody's not telling the truth. He's offended his God and won't admit it. So they took as many stones as there were sailors and put them in a container. One of the stones they put an X on, and they're all ready to draw lots or in process of it when the captain finds Jonah downstairs and says, Up, up, sleeper. Perhaps you've offended your God. And so Jonah staggered up on deck, and he's cold sober now and he realizes what a terrible thing he's done and so they put a stone in there for him too and give it a good shake and a rattle and everybody takes their stone and which one does Jonah get now wasn't that a coincidence you see under under heathen superstition the idea was that God would guide the hand of the guilty person to the stone or put the stone under his fingers you see that's how you could tell who was guilty but uh, he did get it and he was guilty and he said, I am a follower of the great God Jehovah of Israel. I have offended him. I am running away from him. He told me to go to Nineveh and warn the people of their destruction. I was afraid to go, and so I'm being punished. And this storm is on my account. Therefore, you will all be drowned if you do not throw me overboard. So you better do it. What did the captain say? No, we don't do that. Men to the oars. We'll beach the boat. Come on, row into the shore. Everybody row. So they all rode. Did they reach the shore? It's a big boat. <clears throat> so the tide carries it out further. And it's kind of interesting. After they were, they're absolutely exhausted. They're up on the, on the deck there, and, and they're absolutely exhausted. And they haven't succeeded in beaching the boat. And the storm is terrible, and they're all going to drown. They're going to lose the ship and everything else. And Jonah said to throw him overboard, so he talks to God, in effect, and says, Jehovah, we didn't want to do it, but since you insist, here he goes. And they shoved him overshore, overboard. So Jonah splashes in the water. Now, of course, the important thing is, does it work? So they stand by to see what happens, and that boat coasted through the water under that terrible gale for just a little further, and all of a sudden, down came the wind, down went the waves. Beautiful, calm sea. Captain says, in effect, now there is a God. <laughs> Boy, when he's mad, he is mad. But if you just do what he says to do, beautiful. So he said to all the sailors, on your knees, man. 
Boy, there's one God we want on our side, Jehovah of Israel. They included him in their their pantheon, you see, of gods. They, they worship many gods. Might as well include this one. This is a real potent god to have around. So they included him. Meanwhile, you've got Jonah back there in the water. Now, he asked them to throw him overboard. But once you get into the cold Mediterranean Sea, and the scripture says that he sank and sank and sank, and then the, one of the spookiest things happened to him that can happen to you when you're swimming in deep water. What is it? <laughs> seaweed. Have you ever run into seaweed in deep water? That's the most horrible feeling. You think it's, a, it's an octopus. You can just feel the tentacles grabbing hold of you. you know. And he got it around his head, which is worse. And he said, I was down to the bottom of the mountains of the sea. And I had seaweed around my head. And, and I prayed to God, he'd just, he'd please spare me. Please spare me. And he's fighting for breath and trying to get up to the surface. And all of a sudden, he's in a straitjacket. Don't know what's happened to him, but it's happened. And the next thing you know, he's thrown into something somewhere. It's very quiet. And he feels around. <laughs> it's gooey. He was there three days and three nights. Now, we wouldn't have any idea what this was like if a modern man hadn't had the same experience and lived to tell about it. And so I gave you that full story, that full, complete text, just as appeared in the British press, and put it in the, in the book. Now, I read this article in 1931 when I, was, when I was in Ipswich, England, on a mission. And I cut out the article because I thought, now, that is really interesting. And I started telling the story. One of my missionary companions doubted the story, questioned it. College graduate says it's impossible, didn't happen, the story's a fake, I gotta see it. I said, I'll get it for you. I go back, I get the story, I think I'm gonna get the story, can't find it. I don't know whether the adversary snatched it or what, but I, it was, I knew right where it was, I went there, it was not there, it was gone. I tried to find the paper, I thought it was a London paper I'd gotten it out of, I was reading lots of papers. Couldn't find it, never did find it, and I had to stop telling the story. I couldn't, I couldn't verify it. 1962, my eldest son went on a mission to England. I just happened to mention to him that I, sh I didn't have any time to do any research while I was there much, and I said, you probably won't either. But there was a story in a British paper about a modern Jonah, and it'd just be great if we could somehow run across that, but of course that's not likely now. But anyway, I just mentioned it. One day I get a an airmail letter. It's the same article which appeared in the same paper um, some 31 years later in Ipswich. It was not a London paper. It was Ipswich. So I got the article back and I said, I'm going to put that where I will never lose it again in a book. So you've got the whole article, which is a summary of the book written in 1913 uh, describing uh, based on the notes taken by the Royal Society of England and of France, uh, based on this man's experience. And he said his experience, which was down off the coast of the tip of South America, where they were trying to get sperm whales, um, he was, there were three men in the boat. They, they harpooned a whale. The whale turned on the boat, smashed it with his tail. One was drowned, one was recovered, one was missing. And it was James Barclay. And so they harpooned the whale again, ran it down, let it get tired. It takes hours and hours to wear out a whale and uh, finally got it so they could kill it and shot it and pulled over the body, uh, the carcass over near the ship. We now bring them right up on board ship.
But in those days, they didn't have ships big enough, and they pull it over a, the side of the ship. Then the sailors just climb off and uh, take these great big uh, knives like so and start flensing off the blubber, cutting it in chunks, which is heaved up on deck. The oil is cooked out of it, uh, the remnant thrown off, you see. And uh, it took them quite a long time to get down to the thoracic cavity of the whale. And then they saw the stomach and saw some spasmodic movement therein. And because the whale, the sperm, when it is frightened, and which actually has teeth designed to, uh, to eat squid, it just multiplies meat with those teeth. But if it's frightened, it will gulp whatever it is. So they were accustomed to finding uh, that a, a whale had grabbed a shark or some large fish at the time that they were trying to tire it out. So they thought that's what was in the stomach, and they put block and uh, tackle on each end of the stomach, cut the stomach loose, and get it up on deck, slit it open, and there's Jim. Now, James Bartley was unconscious, but he was still alive. The acid had gotten to his hands and his face and turned them to parchment, but um, uh, not otherwise damaged him. We don't know how Jonah got past the acid, but the swallow is about eight feet long, so that's a real straitjacket esophagus uh, uh, squirm. But once he said he had arrived, he was kind of spilled out. He, he found he could breathe, and of course he, was, he thought he was going to burst his lungs just before the whale grabbed him. When he realized where he was, it was such a traumatic shock that he was fearful the whale had gotten away and he would starve to death or the acid would eat him all up. Uh, the air is 104 degrees down there in the stomach of the whale and it's stomach gas, so uh, not too pleasant. And um, so anyway, he finally went into shock, went unconscious and woke up in the captain's cabin, which was also a shock. Now, uh, this is what happened to Jonah except that after three days, this whale isn't digesting what it's got, and it does what every sick whale does. Uh, a sick whale uh, goes to shore to burp up what it can't digest, along with the bile that goes with it. And whale bile is very valuable for making perfume. You girls, I just don't understand it, but skunk juice and, and whale bile are your favorite perfumes, corral number five, you know? I never could quite figure out all, all uh, and five dollars a quarter ounce or something. It's fantastic. Anyway, this happened to Jonah, and he was burped up on the shore. And I just imagine there was more traumatic coming up than was going down even. But what a thrilling thing it must have been to be in that water that was uh, fresh and fresh air and sunshine. My, he must have been thankful. And there was the Lord. He said, Jonah, Nineveh, yes, 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 I'm on my way. Now you'll notice when he went to Nineveh, it was uh, several hundred miles, he got inside one whole day before he, before martyrdom. He's only going to get them, give the message once, you see. So he wants to get one full day in with a good crowd, and then he gave it to them. Thus saith the Lord God Jehovah of Israel, in 40 days this city will be destroyed. Thus saith the Lord God Jehovah. See? They didn't do anything to him. And he went through the whole city, brave as he could be. Came out on the other side, thought, well, that wasn't so bad after all. He didn't know the king had repented, had all the people go into sackcloth and ashes, and prayed that God had given him another chance. And so when God appears to Jonah, he says, wasn't that wonderful? What's well, wonderful? They repented. So? So I don't have to kill them. You what? <laughs> oh, they deserve it. And then the Lord didn't say anymore. So Jonah built that little booth to sit out the 40 days and see if God would just come up with a little something or other. 
And you remember uh, God had the gourd grow up over the booth. Then he had a worm snip it. And the next day, the 120 degree heat with those winds came in. Jonah fainted. When he came to, the Lord was there. And he said, now, Jonah, that plant wasn't your doing, but you liked it. The killing of the plant wasn't your doing, but you missed it. You didn't build a city. I got 120,000 children in there, don't know the right hand from the left. And since their parents are repentant, shouldn't we spare the city? And that's the way it ends. We don't know what happened to Jonah, but we know that the Assyrians repented for 40 years. And the next time they went out, they were on their way to doomsday, finally defeated by the Babylonians in 605 BC, just before the Book of Mormon opens. And that's all for tonight. We'll see you next time. Now it's chapter um, 19. 19 for next time.